Hello, and welcome to the Science in the City podcast, your gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. I'm your host, Tamara Johnson. In partnership with the Imagine Science Film Festival, the Academy recently hosted a panel of scientists who work with media in innovative ways to bring their research to the public. One of the speakers, Blavatnik award-winning scientist, Dr. Jonathan Fisher, is the founder and director of the Neurodome Project, which uses the power of immersive visualization technology, like you would experience in a planetarium show, to present cutting edge knowledge about the brain and how it works. In this podcast, Dr. Fisher will talk about the Neurodome Project, some of the newest techniques being used to study the brain, some of which he's working on developing, and the power of various visualization techniques in both studying and educating about neuroscience. To start off, could you please introduce the idea behind the Neurodome Project? The Neurodome Project is a project to take uh, real data from scientists and, and physicians all over the world working on um, neuroscience and you know, clinical neurology, to take that data and to be able to visualize it in immersive projection environments, uh, specifically uh, dome format, planetarium environments. Um, and we're, we're, what we're doing is taking advantage of the tools for astrovisualization and astronomy education and applying that to neuroscience. What gave you the idea for the project? Um, so my background is physics. Um, that's what I did in graduate school. And uh, all the, I guess, all the experimental physics that I've ever done has been uh, in the context of neuroimaging, actually, uh, at first. Uh, using uh, coming up with cool laser tricks to um, to extract um, the measurements of electrical activity in individual neurons. So I've always done neuroimaging, and actually before graduate school, I worked in experimental cosmology in the field of uh, astrophysics and making images of the uh, cosmic uh, infrared background of the uh, university, the remnant glow of the Big Bang. So I've always done imaging, you know, first at the outer limits and then at the inner limits of uh, human knowledge. And I've always been amazed by the kinds of things we can see and the cool images of neurons, especially three-dimensional imaging. Um, and, you know, whenever I would show any of these movies or pictures to relatives or non-scientists, friends, you know, people always say, that's, that's crazy that we can see that. And, you know, I, I realized that scientists really get this, uh, uh, this rare view of the brain that, you know, non-scientists don't get. Um, and I realized that it was going to be a long time before non-scientists actually see that. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons is because there's not really a technique or, or a venue for showing people uh, this kind of data. So um, as, as a kid, you know, being interested in astronomy, one of the, one of the things that got me interested in science and astronomy in particular was uh, planetarium shows. And I remember one of the, I think one of the, one of the last planetarium shows I remember uh, as part of school trips was this show that, you know, it was about space but ended with this message that you know, the, the voiceover said, but the real frontier is the brain. And then there was this, you know, graphic of some, you know, fuzzy brain kind of oscillating and pulsing. Um, and that, that really turned me on to neuroscience. So the idea that uh, um, you could use a compelling uh, informal science education environment to uh, get people excited about data and about the way things look, that, that, that was kind of a, that carried over from childhood and really was the in inspiration for that. To switch gears a little bit, what are some of the visualization technologies currently being used to study the brain? 
and what are some of the limitations associated with them? So I'd say the, the holy grail of neuroimaging is to be able to image or take movies of the electrical activity, the communication between neurons at you know, a, neuron, a cellular scale to see the activity uh, in individual neurons in the whole brain in a human during wake conscious behavior you know, because then you could actually see what's going on exactly. For example, uh, you know, at the panel discussion at the New York Academy of Sciences, I think there was at least one question on, you know, consciousness and what's happening in the brain during consciousness. And again, can we know that? Right. So the holy grail is to be able to actually see what all the neurons are saying at any given time and, you know, see if we can learn what consciousness is about. Right. So we can't do that right now. And one of the reasons is that seeing electrical activity uh, in individual neurons is hard that, you know, that that's one thing it's, you know, there are there, you know, one of the techniques is, um, that you can use this is using optical microscopy. You can put in, uh, dyes, you can stain neurons with dyes, living neurons with uh, voltage sensitive dyes that will change their color depending on the electrical activity. So just seeing the electrical activity is one thing, right? Um, seeing deep into the tissue of the brain, that's a huge challenge, right? Because, um, you know, the, the brain is, is dense tissue, right? Uh, have you ever tried to see the bottom of a glass of milk, right? It's, it's hard to do that because there's lots of fats uh, in the milk. It's dense tissue like milk is highly scattering. So, you, you know, when you shine a laser beam through scattering tissue, um, the, the beam doesn't travel through the nice uh, linear path that it starts out with, but it starts diffusing just like dye diffuses in, in a liquid. So, um, High resolution imaging uh, typically uses light as the probing radiation and visible light scatters a lot in the brain. So it's hard to do high resolution imaging uh, in the brain, deep in the brain. And so we have our highest resolution pictures from the surface of the brain, particularly in uh, non-human uh, mammals. You know, on the other hand, we have MRI, which has, you know, okay resolution, maybe, you know, millimeters, and depending on the field strength of the, of the magnets, you can get even down to tens of microns. So, you know, you, there are different techniques um, that have different spatial resolutions that can see into the brain. Okay, so back to activity, right? How can you see, you know, neural activity, electrical activity with something that can see deep like MRI? Um, you can't. One of the things you can see uh, is uh, blood volume. Um, or oxygenation with uh, MRI. And what that really is, is you're seeing the signatures of metabolic activity uh, using that technique with functional MRI. So what you're looking at when you see these images of the brain that have places lighting up using um, fMRIs, you're seeing places that um, have been doing work. <laughs> and so the so you know in in uh, throughout the field of cognitive science, you know when people say that this part of the brain is responsible for you know emotions or you know or even typically more complex than that, you know this this part of the brain is uh, is important for religion or something like that. Uh, what you're really saying is that during <laughs> during some task, this part of the brain has was working very hard. And so, you know, that, that does tell you something that tells you, that shows you a location where stuff has happened. But, um, you know, I, I think of it a little bit like, you know, if you, if you woke up and you don't remember what you did, you know, the night before, but you know that your calves hurt, you don't, re you don't know whether it's because you were bicycling or, <laughs> or, you know, doing stretches, you don't know what kind of physical activity you were doing, but you know that your calves hurt. So, uh, you can say that your legs were involved 
in you know some activity that occurred, but you can say exactly you know uh, exactly what the movements were, and so that's that's the parallel I, I would draw there. And what about your own research on optical microscopy? The the work that I do in optics is is uh, at this point still um, you know at the cellular re- resolution and really sort of focused on uh, what we can measure at the surface of the brain because that's using optical microscopy is still. I would say that generates some of the prettiest portraits of individual neurons since you have high enough resolution that you can see you know, cell bodies and their processes, the, the arms that, uh, that extend from, from the cells. Uh, you can also, we also have a lot of molecular biological tricks that we, we can use to get cells to light up, for example, when they're active and communicate with each other. But uh, op- the, the optical microscopy that I like to focus on now is still you know, low resolution enough that you can have a wide field of view and see lots of, of neurons interacting. Whereas something like electron microscopy gives you, you know, highly resolved individual neurons, but you tend to not be able to see very many neurons. Um, also with electron microscopy, you can only look at tissue that has dead tissue that's been fixed with chemicals. Uh, whereas with the kind of microscopy I'm interested in doing that I do um, is looking at uh, neuron, living neurons and living tissue, and you can do this in behaving animals. Could you address the challenge of making sense of the vast data sets neuroscientists have to work with, and how visualization and technology are being applied to the task of sorting through all this information? I would say the largest data sets that uh, we have currently are associated with very, very high resolution uh, microscopy techniques, for example, um, serial sectioning electron microscopy. So electron microscopy generates really high resolution, high spatial resolution images of any sort of biological tissues. Um, um, Researchers are now using um, that kind of technique, that kind of high resolution microscopy, um, but uh, doing that one slice at a time to kind of slice through large volumes of brain tissue. This, the uh, size of those uh, of those um, data files is, you know, terabytes or something like that. Um, so the, the, the general strategy towards looking at those kinds of data sets is taking little bites of it, um, analyzing small pieces of it, and, um, you know, seeing if you could extract some larger parameter from that. Um, the difficulty is that in these, you know, very high, highly resolved um, uh, data cubes, the trends that you're looking for are kind of picking out uh, branching neurons, for example. The challenging thing is to trace out these, you know, long processes, these filaments in neurons that um, span through very, very dense data. So I think one way to, uh, to, to really parse this dense data is not necessarily to take all the data and, and uh, cut pieces and, and cut small pieces out of that that correspond to neurons, but to have you know either a computer program do something smart or a human playing a game do something smart where um, you use your visual judgment to just uh, pick out what data pieces data bytes to look at based on you know where, visually where in the slice it looks like the the, uh, the neuron is so I, I guess the real answer is that uh, people are still trying to come up with the best uh, tools to look at complex data and. Um, it looks like you can really get help from uh, the uh, human visual intuition. And... To come back to the idea of education, during the Imagine Science Film Festival, 
You mentioned something I thought was really interesting, which is the vertiginous effect of losing track of visual cues from your horizon, and how that imparts a sense of awe and provides a different way of learning about data. Could you explain that, please? You know, I, I started formulating this idea of you know, possibly using a planetarium to visualize neural data through early conversations with friends that were actually in the production department at the Museum of Natural History here uh, that were making the planetarium shows and eventually with the director of astrovisualization there. And what I realized is that one of the, one of the reasons that a planetarium is effective is that when visually you lose your sense of horizon, you actually feel like you are physically moving through the data that you're seeing. And, and the reason is because we, we infer our sense of orientation and balance through both vestibular clues, like actual orientation of our body, and visual cues. Um, so, you know, what we see in terms of the horizon and when we don't have, um, when, when, we, when our, uh, our visual cues are kind of, you know, screwed up, you know, our sense of balance is up for grabs. And so, the, you know, I realized that this is the, this is the trick that's used by, you know, uh, uh, the, the planetarium community. And the reason it, it works and is useful is that flying through data is another way of learning about the three-dimensional nature of, and three-dimensional um, landscape of data and, and what the architecture is like of, of the data around you. So, you know, we learn about spaces, you know, we animals, you know, learn about spaces and complex environments in two ways. Um, one way is uh, through having a mental picture of like a map that's called the an, an allosteric uh, technique where you have a, a map-based learning where, you know, I know the map, of, I know the floor plan of a building and therefore I know how to get from point A to point B. And that's the kind, that's, I would call it insider's view of, say, of any data set of brain, of architecture, something like that. And that's, it's really powerful to have that internalized because then, you know, you can navigate from point A to point B, wherever point B may be. The other way that people learn about spaces and geometries um, is through root-based knowledge. For example, in a, in a building like this, like the, uh, you know, the architecture of any one of these floors is involved, and I'm not an architect, and many people aren't, and typically the way I remember how to get from point A to point B is as how I navigate through the hallways. Um, and so that is uh, my root-based understanding of the space here. Um, there, the way people typically learn about the brain, about biology and anatomy is being shown two-dimensional pictures of, you know, the brain uh, slices through the brain and you just see, you know, here's the cerebral cortex, uh, here's the thalamus, and, you know, you're, it, you just need to learn, you're expected to learn the anatomy just from pictures that you see. But, you know, if, if you don't really have, if you're not a neurosurgeon and don't really have a feel for what these structures actually mean, um, I think using that second way of learning about spaces, the root-based navigation, can really give you a more tactile intuition for where things are in the brain. And I realize that that is, you know, completely unexplored for, well, underexplored for, uh, for biological applications. So, you know, it, it struck me that um, using a, a planetarium or other immersive visualization environments can, can be a way for people to learn through root-based learning complicated anatomical structures and places. What do you hope people take away from the Neurodome project? I'd like to get a, a couple things. First off, you know, it seems, seems basic, but um, a sense of scaling and orders of magnitude. I, I think uh, as scientists, we have this, you know, very good intuition for 
uh, scientific notation and um, you know scaling things in powers of 10. We have a good feel for the fact that um, in science you can have uh, you can have action at vastly differing spatial scales. So, for example, in astronomy, you know the scale of the universe, you know, many fold different than uh, the uh, the scale of Earth or you know of, of galaxies and such. Um, and you also have that in biology. And scientists typically have a you know good mental picture of. How many orders of magnitude difference? The fact that uh, you know the the size of the head is in centimeters and the size of individual neurons is you know in microns. You know we have this. It, it seems you know very natural to us that there is what orders of magnitude mean. But I would say the general public doesn't really have a feel for that. Um, you read the Wall Street Journal and you look at graphs and trends. You know there's you have you know some plot with a slope, typically you know a linear slope, um, and every now and then. Um, in the news, they mention exponential growth, and that exponential is sort of the umbrella term for everything that's not a straight line. Um, but you know, what, what does it mean to grow exponentially? So I, I think conveying by being able to zoom from at a scale of the whole brain and uh, zoom down into individual neurons and everything in between, I think that really, um, in a, in a you know, very uh, intuitive physical way, conveys to the non-specialist what it's like to be in these different uh, uh, spatial scales. And I think planetarium shows that focus on space do that. Um, and I, I think it's very effective. I think immersive display is a very effective way of doing that. So I would say a sense of scaling, uh, also a, an appreciation for what neuroimaging, various kinds of neuroimaging can actually show us about the brain. The, the various type, the, the kinds of images we can see, for example, you know, we know I think a lot of people have seen um, images of, you know, maybe two-dimensional images of MRI uh, uh, data. You know, anyone who's ever had an MRI scan of them, or has a relative who's had a brain MRI, or or even CAT scan, we've seen those kinds of clinical images, um, and we know that there are neurons somewhere around there jiggling. Um, but you know, what do those neurons look like? What are the kinds of techniques that can produce that? You know, when you when you zoom down to that kind of scale, you know how how fuzzy are the images, um, and we're going to be showing data um, from a variety of imaging modalities, from the large-scale MRI or CAT scan, you know, that would be the large-scale, um, down to, you know, optical microscopy, which has resolution of microns, and then um, data from electron microscopy, which, you know, can, can show, uh, you know, features of, you know, 100 or, or less uh, nanometers, and so... So having a real, getting the appreciation of that and seeing the kinds of images that uh, scientists see, that's, I would say, the second major thing I'd like to impart upon audiences. What I hope uh, happens is people to just be wowed by neuroscience and get excited about, uh, see it as another three-dimensional uh, um, uh, frontier that uh, they'd like to explore. Thanks so much. That's it for this Science in the City podcast. For more, visit scienceinthecity.org. You can also follow us on social media. We are Sci and the City on Twitter and Science and the City on Facebook. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a wonderful Thanksgiving. <laughs>